Hey there out there. You are deeply tuned in right now, man, to the Real People Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Ginsberg. If it's your first time tuning in to our deep conversations, welcome to the show. We have a really good episode today. I interview Justin Garcia, musician, electric guitar player, philosopher, conversationalist, knowledge base of all things musical history. <laughs> it was a deep one. It was a good one. I'm excited for you to hear it. If you're returning to the Real People Podcast, welcome back. We're glad to have you. Good to see you again. I'm glad we've established this relationship. So look, I usually start off these things with my deep thought of the week, but this whole episode was kind of one big deep thought. That's the kind of guy Justin is. <laughs> so uh, I'll make it brief. I have one little thought this week. Man, I can't think of a time when I resent myself more than when I'm kind of floating around my apartment, having a decent day, everything's going fine, maybe it's Sunday afternoon, and then out of nowhere, my bed appears and I stub my toe. And then all of a sudden, I'm full of pain, resentment, anger towards myself for stubbing my toe, anger towards the bed for materializing in the room without giving me notice, just, just full of just negative despair, depression, anxiety, and hate for a split second as I writhe in pain from the stubbing of the toe. That's about the lowest of the low. That, that 20 seconds is about the darkest place I could ever be in in my life. <laughs> okay. Obviously, I stubbed my toe earlier this morning. I just want to get that quick, deep thought out. Let's move on. I don't have a sponsor yet, but I'm just promoting various organizations that remind me of my guests. And my guest, Justin, is actually a participant in a collective called The House out of Brooklyn, New York. It's, it's a really cool platform. It was sparked by the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They've dedicated their platform to sharing information about the current civil unrest in America and hoping that that perspective will help to reveal what's underneath the actions people can take to make a difference, and the overall intention is to just engage in a healthy conversation about race and racism through storytelling. There's a lot of artists on there, different kind of talks, music, comedy. It's, 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 it's very cool, and I would recommend that you check it, check it out. Uh, Justin's going to talk about it a bit in the interview as well. That's uh, www.thehouse.com, but the S is a 5, so it's like thehow5.com, kind of like that band, Deadmau5. Okay, let's get it off the ground. Okay, so my guest today is Justin Garcia, the musician. I spend a lot of time in the beginning of the interview giving context to our relationship and like how we know each other and relate to each other, so I'll spare you that for now. There's one thing I want to tell you here in the intro about this episode that I think you should just know contextually going into it. So Justin was like, my childhood best friend had a huge impact on my life, and we were really good friends all through high school. We were in a band called Section 1211. We were in college. We were like best friends. We lived together for a year. And then after that, I, I, we kind of just stopped talking entirely for eight years straight. Didn't have any communication at all. Saw him maybe once during that eight-year period at a wedding. <laughs> and there was this void, like I always miss Justin. And um, during shelter-in-place and quarantine, he called me, and we rekindled our friendship. But when he came over to record the podcast, that was a couple weeks ago, he came to my apartment. That was the first time me and him had been in the same room together, like one-on-one -on -one with no one else around in almost a decade. And we didn't really catch up or anything. I just turned the mics on, and you're hearing two people that haven't spoke that were best friends for like years and years and years catching up live on microphones. So it's, it's an interesting episode because of that. Now, we didn't talk about anything personal. We just had a crazy conversation about music and philosophy, and that's, that's very Justin. But it's, it's weird how when you have those childhood kind of friends, you can just pick up where you left off. You'll hear in the, in the interview, too, this one's a little different than the other ones because I, I sometimes forget that I'm doing an interview. It, we just kind of started talking and catching up, and I, I giggle a lot because I find him very amusing. 
And uh, it was just a very genuine conversation. I just want you to know, and you could choose to believe this or not believe it after you've listened to this, this, this interview, that if the mics weren't on, if there were no microphones on, this is the exact same conversation that Justin and I would have had. There's nothing adultered about it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just us talking. This is what our conversations are like. So I, I hope you enjoy it. I know you will. Justin's a fascinating guy. Introducing Justin Garcia. You were one of my first friends. I think out of all my friends, nobody has had more of an impact, starting from when I was a little kid, on my perceptions of the world, the way I see the world, the things that I value, the things that I uh, think are funny. I mean, our relationship, starting at a young age, really impacted and colored the way I look at those things. Do you remember the album? Like, do you remember the music that you listened to where it just, your brain kind of shut down and then reboot and suddenly you're visualizing things in a different way. You know, you're, you're, the world has changed and from then on out. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I remember this specifically I, uh, for me. And it's going to be really disappointing. Oh, well, nice. first of all, that was really nice of you to say. <laughs> I was also uh, my first friend. Ah, so we, <laughs> we share that in common. You were your first friend? Yeah. <laughs> you were no. like, you know who I... I met a, a kid at school today, Ma. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what's his name? <laughs> it's me. <laughs> well, I'll be in my room with my friend. Well, here's the so here's the thing. Yeah, there is um, now as an adult, this singular event was probably the most life informing, and it was when I went to Cuba for the first time, and I think I was 13. Yeah, and I remember being in the airport, um, just waiting and near like one of those deli concession stands. Yeah, that happened to have CDs because there used to be physical CDs at the at the airport that you would pick up. That's right. Yeah, and I bought um, I bought Limp Biscuit. Of course. <laughs> Now, classic. Yeah, it wasn't three dollar bill, y'all. It was uh, chocolate starfish and the hot dog. No, flavor. no, oh. it was um, well because three dollar bill, y'all was the that was the first one. That correct? was the first one. Fo- yeah. I mean, I have an expert knowledge of all things Limp Bizkit, so, so it was, was probably it was probably uh, the one with break stuff on. It, it was the one with break stuff on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here I was going on arguably the most important trip of my life, like the thing that actually gave me cultural perspective because it allowed me to see myself outside of. Um, being within this country, yeah. and my primary concern was this Limp Bizkit album, <laughs> and I listened to it, man. I listened to it so much that you know, it really that was it. It's, it's no, it, well, <laughs> there was a couple. There was a couple. I didn't. Ex- I really did not expect you to say that in no, my Lim- head. No, Limp Bizkit was a big one for me. <laughs> I had a neighbor. I had a neighbor. Probably earlier than that. Uh, I would say like f- before before we met, maybe like fourth grade. Yeah, I had this crazy neighbor. This kid, uh, Bobby, real like. Um, I don't know, like just a delinquent <laughs> of the highest order. One of those tr- kids, he was a yeah. trouble, yeah, he was a, tr- a true troublemaker, trouble cigarette he, kid. He lent me two, <laughs> C- well, he lent me two CDs. He lent me um, that Prodigy oh. CD. Oh yeah, and that first uh, 311 CD. Of course, right? Yeah, the, the I forget. I don't know any of their songs, but I re- I know all of their songs. Well, we forget, man. We grew up in a strange time for music. Yeah, you know, the late '90s, early 2000s. It was. Slim. It was all geared towards seventh graders. Yeah. it was. Slim, <laughs> it was slim pickings. <laughs> These were the first things that I guess connected to me like hormonally. Yeah. You know, as like a as like a, a burgeoning young man. Yeah. But I think Nirvana was the first thing that emotionally got like changed got to the me. brain. You know, like I yeah. felt this weird spirit uh kind of like in you know, fester. <laughs> uh, well, I've always said that Nirvana to me, for if you're gonna become a music 
kid and then a music adult. But Nirvana is that album. It's, it's, it's when you listen to like Nevermind for the first time, and then you go back and you get into Bleach, and then you listen to In Utero. As you start to go through the catalog, it's gateway music. It, it, every Nirvana person goes on to become like the kids who were just wore like Nirvana shirts in school, listen knew every Nirvana song, played only Nirvana on guitar. By like high school, they've evolved into this new. They listen yeah. to other stuff. They don't listen to Nirvana anymore. They have the ultimate respect for it, but they they forget about it forever. You know. And then there's kids that just stay Nirvana people. They just that's it. They just stay Nirvana people and then they never play guitar again. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's layers to Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. I'm still discovering things about Nirvana. Me too. Like today. Yeah. You know, um, there was when I started listening to the Bad Plus, mm -hmm. and sure. I heard the Bad Plus cover uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit and, and Lithium with <laughs> Wendy Lewis. Great song. And just learn. I mean, well, the thing is now now I realize that Kurt Cobain was a, uh, he was a genius melody writer. Sure. Like a brilliant melody writer well sure if anyone sits down and tries to do like a solo instrument arrangement whether on piano like i i've i've uh most recently i was trying to do heart-shaped box yeah. just solo on guitar Be which is a beautiful melody the shapes you come up with the yeah. like the upper harmonic extensions yeah on on because of the way that kurt voice leads it's it's beautiful yeah it's like some of the most haunting stuff <laughs> well of course i mean he was i mean and i'm not taking any away from anything away from kurt cobain he, he couldn't do much else. I mean, that's what he did yeah. really, really well. I, I mean, actually think he was surprised. I think he was a better guitar player than he let on. Do you think so? I, I do. I don't think he was. I, don't, I mean, I don't, or at least it was his brand was like, I suck at guitar, fuck music, and I'm, a, I'm this incredible songwriter, but I'm disturbed. You know, I don't think he ever like every solo he played was just him rolling on the ground. Like, uh, but those were, those were, <laughs> those recorded solos. My, I'm learning slowly that my favorite guitar players are also singers. Yeah, oh, this is this is like because for a long time I was an anti. Um, I realized I like very falsely I was an I was an anti melody person hmm. or like not but just by ignoring lyricism yeah just just didn't mean anything to you because I got when I got into like jazz and when I got into I, I fell in love with the um, with the sort of electric tribalistic expressive mm -hmm. cathartic aspect of instrumental yeah. music and that's your Cuban roots too isn't it yeah yeah. But even with, and I think that was the thing too. Even with Nirvana, it's like I I didn't even have to pay attention to the lyrics. Yeah, it was just there was something so visceral to that music. Yeah, well, and, you know, and I felt exactly the same way listening to um, something by Nirvana as a, a '70s like electric era Miles hmm. thing, mm. just because it just mm. felt it just felt like someone screaming. Mm -hmm. You know, in yeah. both in both cases. So it took me a very long time to come around to lyricism, mm. and then ultimately to really get deep into uh, melody and what melody is doing. And mm -hmm. that's kind of been my prime focus now. Interesting. So do you think that uh, that through the chaos of something like a Miles Davis, the, the, the melody shone through and that's similar in that way with Kurt Cobain? I think that's, that's the way I can break that down in my head. That if you, if you hear something like uh, some crazy Nirvana tape from like 1991, you might think it sounds like chaos, but inside of it, there's some really beautiful stuff going on because he's channeling a direct from a direct source. Yes, and I think so was Miles. And my, yeah, and the thing, the funny thing about Miles is Miles is not noty. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's, he, but he's heavy on what he's doing. Yeah, but yeah. he would just he'll like let one note sail yeah. over bars. Yeah, <laughs> just lets it just lets it cruise, man. Yeah. Um, so there is there is a, a similarity. To that. I mean, I I. You know, you get into arguments with people, well, not arguments, but just like there's a lot of people you encounter who are very hesitant to get into jazz. Mm -hmm. So I they're scared of it. Man. They're scared. Well, <laughs> I no, I actually think there's an aesthetic component to jazz which is alienating. Huh. I think that the way that the instruments sound yeah. is alienating. 
just the the time signatures, the not the, even just the, that, just the tech, the like concept of improvis- improvising. No, I think <laughs> I think that I think that people don't like like I think horns, uh-huh. right? Scares me. I think <laughs> horns, scary trumpets. They don't sound modern. <laughs> yeah, I think no, people don't. don't like the way that horns sound. Interesting. So like I tell them to envision the same music. Yeah, but with different instruments. Huh. So if you took like any of that stuff and you just had it, you had it reimagined in a contemporary sense. I think a lot more people would be would be hip to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I mean, really, I mean, if you take any kind of hip hop music today, the 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 pulse of it is the same as 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 jazz. You know what I mean? It 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 the the rhythm and the beats and the uh, you could probably reinterpret that in some sort of uh, hip hop framework that would make a lot of sense well, to, that's to why, people. Yeah. It was, uh, that's how I'm kind of relating to what you said. Well, like, that's what Kendrick was doing, and yeah. uh, you know, most recently and, and most sadly, Mac Miller. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he he was. Yeah, I mean, with Thundercat, I, I mean a pioneer and man. Yeah. All those, I mean, you know that I'm I'm a huge Mac Miller fan. Obviously, I have him all over the walls yeah. here. You can see, uh, and I I think that he was really thinking about jazz in a way that no modern musician ever had. I mean, he, but he had just gotten started. That's the tragedy of Mac Miller. Like he like just kind of started. Like his last album, while it was a masterpiece, he like it was like an insight of like where he might go, and then that was it. So we don't really know where the, where he would have gone with that that concept, but. Totally agree with that. Jazz can be alienating and scary. It took me a long time to even to even st- tip my toes into jazz. Uh, even rock music. I mean, the funny th- jazz and rock came about um, as large cultural phenomena, roughly at around the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they were they were in parallel with each other in some ways. And they both came about in a t- where they both emerged in a, in a way that they're hard to they're hard to contextualize. It's so you know there's the old debates about classical music about what is the work of art in a, mu- in, a mu- in a classical piece yeah. right and it's easier to argue that the work of art or the or the piece of art is the written music the score mm-hmm. right you, it's, it, you can't say that with jazz right i mean there's standards but standards are really just kind of like a it's it's like a mel- melodic concept mm-hmm. over a specific set of chords but then 80% of it is interpretive mm-hmm. right and rock music also kind of disrupted our the thing that rock and jazz share is their live art forms right right so that's why i think that rock and jazz suffered similarly in in the, in the wake of the way that we receive music now hmm. <laughs> like people don't like rock music or people don't like electric guitar until they're in the presence of a really good electric guitar player sure right yeah. people don't the- really appreciate or understand jazz until they're in the presence of a jazz band that's killing it. Yeah, and and what is the definition of a jazz band that's killing it? Is it full connectedness? You know, is it full like, I, I you know my grandfather was a musician. Just like a quick aside about my upbringing, like you know my my grandfather was a musician in the Musicians Union in New York City. Uh, played with Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra, all those guys in the swing bands. Had opinions about jazz, like raw form jazz. You know what I mean? And he he felt that the the great musicians, the ones that were truly great, you could tell that they they played scales for like 15 hours a day every single day. Like he could, he could identify those who put the work in that way. Like he was like, that guy doesn't practice. He, he, like he used to say about Kenny G, that guy doesn't practice, right? Like, like Kenny G's a joke. He hated him more than anybody. I'll, I'll never forget. He like hated him. He used to rant about him at the dinner table. But he would say, well, that guy doesn't practice. And you'd, I'd show him things like these people don't practice. And to him, it was a bunch of high-functioning people. Like jazz was like a bunch of people that lived and breathed and sweat scales like the most mundane aspects of music like just playing their scales over and over again and then they got together and they fucking let loose with like all their knowledge of what they knew of the technicality of it and then when you witness that these people who put everything into it 
and you see it all synergizing before you, that's when you can really be floored by jazz, you know? Yeah. Well, also, it's the guys who, and, and you know, it's the people who not only are very learned. Yeah. You know, they're filled with their musical nutrients. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But they are to the point that it's transparent to them. Yeah. You know, like uh, Miles famously said, I'll play it first and tell you what it is later. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so meaning it's like nobody <laughs> wants to hear somebody just like, it's like nobody wants to hear anyone in any kind of field or any kind of profession uh, just sitting there spouting technical details right, of right, what they're right, doing. Right, 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 right. Um, you just want to see something beautiful. Yeah, you just want to see the result. Yeah. So to me, it's like theory and knowledge of harmony is great insofar as it enriches your capacity to express yourself. Mm -hmm. If it ends up stinting that capacity, then you just become an annoying person, yeah. right? Yeah, it, yeah, like, yeah. It, <laughs> sure. Because it's all about, it's vocabulary, yeah. right? You can know, it's like, so the best musicians are the ones that they have, they have all of that, you mm -hmm. know? But they have it so they can make these delicate choices. Right, 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 right. And that, and that makes sense, I mean, it's it's funny because like we're having this conversation right now and I'm having this weird flashback to being like 11 years old and we were having the same conversation 12 years old and you were but you were talking about Jimi Hendrix and you were saying you know the difference the thing about Jimi is like it's not just enough that he's the best guitar player like the way he expresses it he's playing and it's actually it's actually kind of having a trippy moment here because it's, it's weird that you were like he's playing like he uh, like you would sing it. You know, like he, it's just coming out of him, and like, and like, uh, you know, Jimmy transcends that. Yeah, he's the best guitar player alive. Like, yeah, he's he's the he's the or was the best guitar player alive. Yeah, he's so technical, but it's like, but there's nobody that sounds like Jimmy because it's coming out of Jimmy. And uh, here we are, 20 years it's later, kind of having identical parallel conversations. It's kind of strange. Yeah, I don't remember that. But you know, <laughs> it's, it's taken me 20 years to realize this stuff myself. Like, yeah, from yeah. internally. Right. Jimmy Hendrix was the first guy who really. Um, he still is, you know, there's there's something inescapable about Jimi Hendrix for me as a player. Yeah. I feel like you're super influenced by Jimi Hendrix. Oh, in <laughs> incredibly. I yeah. can't I can't do anything about that. Yeah. It's just it's just <laughs> in my DNA. Yeah. Um and for whatever reason, he's the one who spoke spoke to me. Yeah. Like on a spiritual level. Yeah. Of sure. music. Um yeah, Hendrix was incredible. Well, I mean, in the early days, because I knew you when you were a young guitar player, and obviously over the years you've and would like to talk about this in the podcast, you've expanded deep into music and making it your whole life and becoming a jazz player and but I, I you know you were the best rock guitarist i knew like you just fucking rocked you could fire up the fender twin reverb and just fucking shred when nobody else could shred when we were like 16 and you just like you could play all the hendrix songs and they then like some kids could play it you know it's like oh yeah i learned how to play you know purple haze i could play the solo it's like you sound like you're playing metal, man. There was like some kids out there that just didn't get it, and you were just, but you sounded like you fucking rocked. You know what I mean? I felt like you always challenge, challenge, uh, channeled that in the beginning, and so it, I, I'd be interested to hear more about your journey over the years because, like, where I left off from you, you were a rock guitar player primarily. I think you were just getting into, like, when we lived together in college, which was 100 years ago. You were just getting into, like, as you mentioned, Afro beats and Cuban music, and you're experimenting with like improvising and weirdo stuff and time signatures. And then flash forward all these years, you've seemed like you've become quite an accomplished jazz player. So, like, how did well, how did you start yeah. channeling that? Where did that go? How did that happen? I mean, like, I'm I'd be. <laughs> I don't consider myself a jazz player only because I know that there's people who dedicate their lives to that. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a study for them. For me, jazz is, a, is an attitude. Yeah. It's a way of approaching music. And not everybody shares that, like, um, that opinion. But it's that's why I can see hip-hop as being an extension of jazz and, and certain rap art. Because it's just a way to approach being in the moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's what jazz is. It, it's like it's a very, it's a very present way it's to... presence. Yeah, to, to be within music. 
because which is different than if you were doing something very compositional mm -hmm. you know which you can marry all these two but jazz to me is more of an attitude um i think i don't know the one thing that stuck with me about you know it's funny with the rock thing is i always identify with an aspect of that because to me music uh and i think ed o'brien actually s said this um that music is the biggest it's, it's like the the most effective lie detector hmm. you know so like you can immediately tell if someone is full of it <laughs> You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we all can. Right. I think that's why it's it's very strange. It's this like ineffable quality to specifically music and musical performance that you we can immediately detect uh, if someone's just just full of it and if it's if they're if it's bullshit. So to me, like even if I'm if I'm not like pulling it off or if I'm not hitting what I want to be hitting, it's always got to be connected from from like a, a an emotional truth point of view hmm. and that's what rock is man rock is like a it's a it's an it's a spirit of attitude it's about feel it's like allowing yourself to connect authentically to something emotional and using music as this carth like carth um like this outlet that you can express these emotions whether yeah. it's like anger you know or <laughs> or frustrations or you know or so whatever you're tapped into man i mean like that i mean you know the flip side of that, the question I asked you in the beginning, like what really changed your brain? Like, and for me, I mean, everybody, a lot of people know this about me, and people listening probably are like, not so gonna be surprised by this response. And it's cliche. A lot of things I say are cliche, but like, you know, I was 12 years old. I heard Sgt. Pepper's for the first time, and it, it completely changed the way I functioned. The reason that it did that was because it, I felt when I was listening to it for the first time that it was really reflecting my presence, who I was as a person. That the the what was going on in that music. Whatever they were singing about, whatever the songs were about, like whatever, besides what John and Paul had in mind, I, it just meant something else to me. Like I just digested it in a way, and I was like, "This, this is the music that completely connects to whoever I am as a being." As my, I, I realized that at a very young age, and from then on, I could no longer see the world in any other lens besides through music. When I was young, specifically, like the Beatles. Um, and then evolving on from there into, uh, you know, all the classic rock that I liked and, and Jimmy Hendrix, which I still like. But back then, like, when you say attitude, like, that that was my belief. That was my religion. That was my worldview. That's how I saw the world. Yeah, it's sacrosanct. It, 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 and it was, I was directly connected to it. At the end of the night, after school, I would come home, and every single night from the hours of, like, 6 p.m. to, like, 11 p.m., I would sit there with my little Walkman on in my parents' living room, and I would do nothing every night for four years straight, all of high school, except listen to the Beatles and classic rock music. And and I would I, I would go to this other fucking place where I like nothing else matter anymore. I was back home in my home planet. Yeah. And uh, you know, I thought to me what you're saying about the it's rock and roll is an attitude. It's something that you can tap into. It's reflective of an experience. I I think anybody that really gets music in that way um, can really relate to that. And throughout my life, it's just been a re a constant reimagining of that in different forms, and so uh, yeah, that's the know, that's weird. the comfort of music. Um, no, so yeah, I guess so. I guess the journey, you know, I listened to we took we were very parallel to one another in terms of our interests musically. Yeah, for like early on yeah. in high school, and then when I got really serious into guitar, when I started seeing, you know, I wanted to expand what I did with with the instrument, and I got into bands like like King Crimson. Yeah, sure. You know, and I started to fall in love with these like angular. I was also an angry kid. Yeah, you know? yeah. Were I, you? I don't remember you being uh, angry. Yeah, no, yeah, I was. Yeah. I had a lot. <laughs> I had a lot of anger issues, man. And I had a lot of uh, empathy issues, so I wasn't able to perceive the fact that you were angry. Yeah. I was like, Justin's yeah. nuts. <laughs> you're, you're a sociopath. 
Not anymore. I, but I, um, yeah, yeah. It just took a while for my amygdala to grow yeah, or something. I had no. I had you know. Well, I had like I was a, I was an ang- I was an angry kid. I was a, yeah. I was a stereotype in a lot of ways. My dad left. Yeah. yeah. These things, it, you know, and I was not conscious of the effects of like emotional events in my early childhood. That luckily I fa- I had music. Right. But what drew my interest through music, I got increasingly fascinated with dissonance mm-hmm. and just these like like I could listen to uh, King Crimson. I could listen to Miles ex- his experimental stuff in the late seventies yeah. when he's just like it's just these dissonant rubs of notes like just cacophonic yeah. things and <laughs> it just I could relate to it because it felt it felt so emotionally uh, uh, soothing you know mm-hmm. to hear it. so. That's what got me hip to jazz. Like, I didn't want to hear songs. Yeah. I didn't want to hear people saying things. I didn't want to <laughs> hear lyrics. You know, it just, it, it wasn't, emotionally, I wasn't there yet. And uh, it didn't, it, it's, it didn't register. Um, I just wanted to get into heady playing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, then I got into jazz and I went the, the whole, you know, you, you get into jam bands and then yeah. you can go, you can, you can either stay in that lane, which is cool and just like kind of like, like relish in it. Mm-hmm. Or you can find like the adjacent movements yeah. like Medeski, Martin and Wood. <laughs> and then you find a recording that John Schofield does with Medeski. Yeah. And then you get into John Schofield. So then you listen to a solo record, John Schofield. Yeah. And then you realize that he was in Miles's band. And then you, <laughs> you reverse engineer from that and you discover a history of music. So for me, I got into jazz from a rock place. Mm-hmm. Which for a while I felt kind of bad about. <laughs> because You're like ashamed. It's like, hey man, how'd you start? It's yeah, like, because don't worry lot, about it. There's a lot of elite. <laughs> there's a lot of elitism. Yeah. In in jazz. Which not, it's, it's which is the anti. Uh, to me, it's the antithesis of jazz. You know I, what I mean? I mean, <laughs> I think we can trace it back though. Yeah, yeah. You know, some people will be hip to Wynton Marsalis. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and he, you know, to his credit, he has with what he established at the Lincoln Arts Center and how he's preserved uh, a. A canon and this this history of jazz music mm-hmm. is extraordinarily important. But as you would know, as a lit guy, right, that canons can, can be problematic. Can be problematic because then you lose everybody else. Yeah, you know, you, what create, I mean? do- be, you create dogma and elitism and elitism. <laughs> so that's what happened within jazz. Yeah. See, jazz in a lot of ways is a suppressed from so from a from a sociological perspective. Sure. You know, from uh, an economic perspective, the way the industry would always work. From just the way that you know, the music industry has always exploited black artists and, and like, mm-hmm. black art forms. So in all these ways, jazz has always been, a like, a subjugated art form. Exactly. Right? I mean, like, we listen to, we could listen to, like, like 50, like, th- some of these, these early jazz recordings, and they sound old. Mm-hmm. But that stuff was, like, it was, like, dangerous music. Yeah. You know, because it was music about, it, it was addressing, like, it, it, you know, it was scandalous. Yeah, sure. So it was, it was it was it was against I mean it was it was against the mainstream. Yes. It was it was from subjugated groups. It was happening underground, barely legal. You know, if you think about the Cotton Club in Harlem and Duke Ellington losing his mind on stage and people coming just to just to dance in the shadows away from the you know what I mean? Like and this the, yeah, this is revolutionary rock. shit going yeah. on here. It's proto punk rock, proto rock music. Yeah. See, we associate the virtuosity mm-hmm. um, as something that that puts it on a different pedestal. Yeah. But the fact is if you were a player of any caliber back then, you had to be good. Right. <laughs> so we have a different set. You know what I mean? There's, we, have a di- we have a cognitive dissonance when it comes to uh, talent, I think, mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, but at any rate... Uh, yeah, for sure. That's true. Yeah. Jazz was this v- subjugated art form. And um, I think that people coming out of the tradition, li- like Winton, 
wanted to find the way to preserve its integrity, mm-hmm. right? So I think that his heart has always been in the right place, right. you know? But what he ended up doing was systematizing a, a music system using the rules of the system that suppressed it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I think that that's often the case in anything in society when yeah. something is being suppressed for so long, right? Well, and also, once you know, unfortunately in our society, when something becomes profitable, it gets taken in some ways, but not, not to say that that's what happened there, but it gets taken in some ways by the powers that be, and then it becomes monetized in a different way, and then yes. other people are in control of it. It loses the aspect of, like, this is a grassroots thing. Yeah. This, can, a, this yes. is a reflection of the culture, and this is a movement. That can, that can oftentimes be packaged and sold. And then, then when that starts happening, you run into the Kenny G. Well, you get, yeah, you get, <laughs> you get, you get smooth jazz. Yeah, you yeah. get Muzak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, you get to go to ShopRite and uh, groove. I mean, dude, the whole, <laughs> well, the whole thing, it's just, I mean, there's so many roots to it, but, like, it's, um, that stagnated the groove. And, that, and to me, that's why jazz became... Um, alienating mm-hmm. to younger audience, hmm. and th- but then you get guys like Brad Meldu, the the, the pianist, and, yeah, and you get yeah. like the Bad Plus, and they st- and and to me, like Brad, like Brad's innovation is he added Radiohead mm. to the to the book, right? To the, to the you know the the quote unquote the real book, right? The like you can I can play a Radiohead tune mm-hmm. at a wedding, right? Yeah. As a jazz standard, and it's acceptable. <laughs> That's really funny. I've never thought about that before, but you're right. You know what I'm if, saying? Yeah. If, if you were to, uh, if you were to play anything off in rainbows in a in a in a jazz standard way at a wedding, people would cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if pe- and here's the thing. And if 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 artists don't do that, if yeah. jazz musicians don't do that, then then it will just go extinct. Huh. You know, music has to always parallel the culture that we're within. Right. Any art form does, in my opinion. Right. You know, like I've you know art to me registers. The feelings, the trauma, the the collective, like the collective understanding that is yet to be expressed otherwise in any sort of ex- explicit, profane way, mm-hmm. of a time and of of people and of a particular situation. Right. So if your art form isn't in relationship or rel- relative to that specific pulse, then you stand the risk of. Um, just not really like just being in an echo chamber right right sure so i think that like dudes who i mean like listen man i wish i could shed all those standards you know all those classic jazz tunes Mm -hmm. but the truth is i mean what i want from that is to glean the knowledge of that music right right and to understand the history of it from like a um genealogical perspective because right. i think it's good to understand how things get to where they're at of course to but understand if, where you're going yeah but Which, if I'm where just, are you going yeah <laughs> but if i'm just sitting here playing duke i mean it's like it's like i gotta we have to find ways to to see music within uh you know in the present yeah 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 oh yeah and i mean and oftentimes i felt things were missed by not even contextualizing music in the first place so it's like i i feel i've even missed out music on my life because i i couldn't listen to it because it, it was out of context for me you know what i mean but being able to contextualize music and then also, understanding it and vibing with it in that way and then bringing it to the present to understand where you're going, I think, is a, is a really good practice to have when approaching music. But that, that being said, where are, we, where are you going? So, like, you have all this knowledge now of music. And like, what is the future exactly? Like, wh- what music is reflective of the culture now? You know what I mean? Like, where are we at? I don't know, man. I mean, well, <laughs> like, you're playing out there. You're a professional musician, right? So, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be said, too. For one, uh, you know, we're... So this is this is being recorded for people who are listening. This is um, this is being recorded March 12th, <laughs> 2020. And nothing's going to go wrong. We're, I, I we're, feel we're, like life is great. We're worried about this thing that's going on. 
that it's, we're all ignoring. This, yeah, it's, it's just it, yeah. it's a little flu. A couple days in the sun goes away. I haven't washed my hands in 13 <laughs> days. Yeah, it's but not, it's cool it's not it's, something to worry about. Because it's early. It's mid-March. Yeah. I'm feeling good. I'm going to see like 10 concerts this summer. I got a bunch of tickets. Oh, dude, I'm playing, I'm playing, a, <laughs> I'm playing the biggest show I've ever... It's going to be thousands I was of ever going to play. I got this festival lined up in Chicago <laughs> that I'm playing in May. I'm wow. so excited about it. That sounds really fun, man. I'm really looking forward to You're it. You're going to yeah. fly there, huh? Yeah, I'm going to fly there. <laughs> nice. It's really great. Yeah. Middle seat, tons of people on the plane. Yeah. Nice, dude. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Everything's going to be fine. Everything is going to be just fine. <laughs> so this is where we're at. So, so we we all know that uh, the music industry, the performance industry, has been destroyed. Yeah, right? overnight, overnight, disappeared. It was the and people talk, and I won't I'll let, I won't interrupt you, but I just want to get out the point that these industries are disappearing, but entertainment disappeared overnight. Overnight, one night yeah. later, it was completely gone. Yes, destroyed, and hasn't returned yet. In a way. And it won't, yeah. in, my, in my opinion. Right, right, right. Um, there's things that I think we all collectively learned about the industry at, at large. Mm -hmm. So, like, for example, Live Nation, right? <laughs> yeah. Live Nation controls... What uh, is Live Nation? I mean, it's it, 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 Live Nation is some uh, uh, Ill Illuminati sort of like who the fuck knows what that is? Dude, Live Nation, <laughs> well, Live Nation's the worst. So I'm not sure if you're hip to this, man, but like, so Live Nation control basically every concert that yeah. goes through North America, right, is owned by Live Nation. I, I believe it. Right, they've spent years trying to present themselves as different companies. You know, you've got Ticketmaster, like, yeah, like Live Master, Nation, and shit, yeah. uh, you know some other weirdo one, and, and and it's it's all meant to to stay out of Monopoly Court. Yes. And here's <laughs> the thing: I'm not I'm not you know I could be wrong, and you know so this is just coming from what I'm what I'm privy to currently, but to insulate themselves to protect themselves from a future disaster, starting in 2021, Live Nation is basically passing all risk on to performers. Wow. So and also they're raising the amount of money that they will be receiving from from all concert revenue. Of course, what if if you were going to consult the evil, yes. the big evil corporation playbook, wouldn't that be chapter now, one? Now here's the <laughs> thing, dude. So like, if you're fucking U two or yeah. like Lady Gaga, like it doesn't matter. Yeah, of course, right? You could you're, you're those mega concerts were continue to be sustaining and mm -hmm. continue. But if you're part of the music middle class, the co the comic middle class, if you're in yeah. any of the performative middle class. We stand. We can, we're about to be exterminated, right? <laughs> unless we take ownership of how we get our content to audiences. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with this, with the new things that Live Nation is, and this is going to trickle down to club players and really the industry at large. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, but who knows, man? It's, <laughs> yeah. I think it's there's. A, I think that the music industry has never really recovered yeah. from like whatever the fuck happened in the 2000s <laughs> right you know what i mean like from when the biscuit <laughs> yeah no just when music got the, like it's it's a it's strange for us because like we're we're coming into this at, from like we didn't live through the 90s as like working musicians or the right. early 2000s in which we understood the 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 glory years mm -hmm. of being like a of a, a playing like rock musician or something like that so like right. when when you could sell cd is like nowadays the modern, um, like, creative band only makes revenue from live concerts. Right. Right? Sure. And when you see, like, Lollapalooza, when you see these big festivals and you see, like, the Stage B, Stage C acts. Right. Even the ones you recognize. Yeah. Like, those acts, man, like, they're pretty much, at best, cutting even on these tours. Sure. And just trying not to 
hemorrhage money yeah just waiting to get onto a regular uh like opening act yeah roster so sure. then they can get their chance of cutting through right yeah so if you're with what live nation is doing unless you know in advance that all of your shows will be sold out <laughs> like if you're billy joel if you're one of those acts yeah, yeah, yeah. your shows are guaranteed sold out right right you're taking a massive you're taking a risk of bankruptcy for your you know quote unquote business as a band right so to me Jeez. that that model is just it's not sustainable right and with everything that's happening really the future of music is finding ways to whether it be through live streaming mm -hmm. you know whether with comedians and what they're doing with podcasts but like we have to find ways to find that revenue stream and just that 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 find that road to our specific audiences mm -hmm. and just keep them fed yeah and i think that 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 is the future both in music and in comedy you know and in the world if if, if we're gonna head towards the future now which it looks like we're going to we were just talking in the kitchen before we started recording that the world is never necessarily going to be the same again in the way that it was so speaking of which i hate when people say oh, i can't wait till it gets back can't to normal. wait till it's it's all normal again there's no normal no dude. i mean how could the fuck does that we've even all been mean? in the house since march so how can we I mean, can you imagine going back to normal there is that there's not going to be a dividing line where it's like hey guys it's normal now but who wants normal normal yeah, yeah. was a systemic failure yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't i couldn't agree more normal <laughs> was a systemic failure like we should use this opportunity to be like okay let's 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 be optimistic about how we can change the future you know, uh, let's dive into change. Let's, yeah. Let's like all the problems in our society are a result of resisting change. This is this is us getting an opportunity to break away from the resistance to change to to really flip things. But in terms of music and in terms of comedy and in terms of life, it does look like uh, whether things ever go back to quote unquote normal, which they won't. For the foreseeable future, we're going to exist as disembodied consciousness on the on the internet. You know what I mean? For for a while, the yeah, the, in some the, ways. the the interaction between people will change. Everything will change. The way you consume music has to change. The way you consume comedy has to change. And so there is actually, like you just said, like a platform and an opportunity for, for the, the, the artists, the working class artists, as you put it, to own it. Um, because I don't think that the corporate structures just yet have a plan for that, how they're going to manage people independently as artists creating their own revenue they're, streams. They're trying, they're trying to. Any, of these stream, any platform that has the capacity to stream right. will attempt to get ownership. There's a future a very immediate future in which podcasts will be owned by networks. Yeah. Like TV shows. And if you're listening, networks, yeah. I'd like to make that deal. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I'm 100% ready to sell out. I'm speaking from no clip. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm, no. Yeah. You know? Dude, I want... Yeah, that said, yeah. all sponsorships. Yeah. What microphones are we using right now? <laughs> the Shure SM58s, yeah. the classic ones that you see in comedy clubs. Not a sponsor yet. <laughs> could use one though what coffee are we drinking we're drinking west side market beans i don't think it has a <laughs> not a sponsor yet i got it from a big band a bag of beans yeah not a sponsor yet we're using a macbook pro and we're recording on logic pro x yeah not yeah. a sponsor not a sponsor yet here's the thing though man it's the best time to be a creative yeah in my opinion seriously because it's whereas before you would have to go on you would have to hit the road yeah Right, do bazillions of a gigs. bunch of times, yeah, over and over again. So you go to Cincinnati, mm -hmm. you get two Ugh. fans. <laughs> you go again next yeah. year, yeah. You gain two more fans, right? You just do it forever, mm -hmm. right? It's the dumbest model, right. and then like you get a man. So until you burn out and go crazy, until and, you burn yeah. out and go crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which at this point we're seeing the effects of that, yeah. Because if you've been 
grinding at it for 10 years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden this shit happens. Yeah. And everything you've been doing, all of your work has been undermined. Right. You're going to be in denial of it. Sure, you're gonna you're gonna want the world to go back to normal because yes. you've just invested 10, 20 years into your into a system that that disappeared overnight, which sucks. Yeah, but that's just what it is, man. But here's the thing: this is the beauty of nowadays. It's like, let's say you had like a thousand monthly listeners, mm-hmm. right? Which is a sizable portion of people. Sure, right? Think about a thousand people relative to the population of the world. Yeah. It's nothing. Zero. Right? But think about a thousand people to me. It's so many people. Yeah. (laughs) So there's room for all of us. Yeah. To just get, to connect to the people who just want to hear our shit. That's why, like, you can have these super bizarre, idiosyncratic, very, like, niche Mm -hmm. pockets of the internet that you just occupy and you just set up your little, like, plot of land. Yeah. And you just keep putting stuff out. And then people will listen. And and the the whole the world of a fan I think fan is a stupid word because I don't like the idea that like the people who appreciate what you're making are subordinate to yeah, you. Yeah, and I yeah, feel yeah. like fan always like presupposes that. But there's people you're participating in it. You're not a, a there's people who like to, fan. There's people who like to participate. Yeah. Like I listen to podcasts because it's cool hearing people I like and find funny or entertaining just shoot the shit. Yeah, you know, me too. So it's like I love the behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. I love seeing like all of the musicians that I love and have been following during quarantine start up YouTube channels. Yeah, just talking about their process. Yeah, there's like gold out there. There's this guy Tom Bukovac who's one of the greatest session players out of Nashville. Mm-hmm. Like z- absolutely zero internet presence, <laughs> right. right? Before any of this, sure. like nothing, right? You could find him on a couple of like weird nerdy guitar forms. Yeah, he starts a YouTube channel. Right, gets like thirty thousand followers, like in a matter of a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Just posts ten minute videos on an iPhone, just talking about his process, and it's the best thing ever. Yeah, because it's like that's all we, you know, it's like there is room for that. It's like people, I think that the creative process is really attractive, um, and documenting the creative process because there's an a, there's a, an aspect of humanity to it, and we see that like yeah. I think people are just over this, and I think this is what what speaks to like all this. Hollywood is bullshit thing. Yeah. Because a lot of it is. Right. Nobody wants to see the, you know, what's the word for it? Just like the... You're back to the canon, man. You're talking about the... Uh, nobody wants to see this dominating presence. Uh, like, there's there's A and B. There's them and us. You know yeah. what I mean? The 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 need to be creative and the, the behind-the-scenes stuff that's becoming more popular and how you mentioned it, everybody can carve out a niche now. It's folk art. Exactly. We're living in a revolution of folk art. Exactly. Exactly. From the ground up for yeah. for, for the, the, the small p- gatherings of people that come to see it. Yeah, man. You, like, know? Uh, you know, podcasts are a form of folk art. Mm-hmm. They really are. It's yeah. it's, it's an it's a art form for the people. Right. And I think that's super interesting. But that's actually be, that's actually art. Right, because yeah. like you said, it's 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 weird to be a fan because it's subjective. Like you want to participate in it. I think that people deep down, especially in these weird times, everybody kind of feels this. It's a human instinct and desire to be creative. So you just want to. I think in our systems, the way that they've they've panned out, we're we're told not to. We're told to do certain things and you know participate in a non-creative life. And I think in everybody's heart, they, 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 they yearn for it. And now to see other people breaking out and saying, even like this little podcast, you know, but you can break out, you can find a niche, you can talk to people and you can show the behind the scenes and inspire other people to see it's possible. We don't need a big conglomerate to control that. And uh, that, I think, is a threat, though, to the giant system yeah. itself. If people can get like minded and behind this, which seems like they are in I some know, ways. I know. Yeah. Peop- it's, uh, you know, because there's it's socialism. Yeah. <laughs> we're being communists sort of but there's you know? nothing to the, but crypto fascism yeah <laughs> is 
that what this Antifa. is? Antifa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what's like the. I always associate the anti Hollywood stuff. I'm uh, just uh, thinking of like tags you could put at the bottom <laughs> to make this go viral. <laughs> yeah. Then I'll be in the bottom of some Reddit thread somewhere <laughs> yeah. that some kid we knew from high school is reading right now. Incels. <laughs> I again like I've more funny you words. said that because like with a, when people hear like oh it's like the Hollywood structure to me it's like to me that's like an alt right insane yeah. not what you said but like you know it's like it's like oh the Jews look what they did but like I, but totally agree in the sense where it's like we don't need to have one structure in control of the future of creativity and and, and art um, we have so much more freedom now especially now that the business is the business itself disappeared. There's a lot of opportunity to reimagine it in all kinds of ways what that means. We're just at the beginning of it. Well, there's, yeah, there's a fascinating opportunity right now. We're seeing a real kind of democracy of creative and social leadership. Yeah. Because I think that all the structures have sort of fallen apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're, we have this unique opportunity as a culture right now to either embolden those who... Because there are experts. Right. There are people who stand for excellence. Sure. There are geniuses. There are people who have the potential to create a paradigm mm -hmm. for the culture. Right. Then there is also the antithesis of that. Yeah. <laughs> working yeah. equally as hard, right? Right. <laughs> so I think that it's kind of like we're in the middle of like this weird battle between two potential futures. Yeah. And hopefully the one that we end up in is 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 the one that we empower to be a society built on the backs of expertise being informed, using knowledge, using the capacity to spread information as yeah. easily as we can now, right. opposed to one of just overwhelming skepticism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which I find valid too. That's why I think I think there's validity on on all fronts of like of these like at the source of conspiracy uh -huh. is a deep rooted skepticism. Right. And we're seeing a we, there is there's a a metaphysical, I guess, dissonance with with the way a person within our society mm -hmm. is feeling towards the world mm -hmm. because everything is showing to be bullshit. Right. <laughs> and right. our but, society hasn't given people tools to cut through the, to cut through. Right. You know, like um, my argument for the arts has always been that the arts allows you to discern ways that reality can be manipulated right right because the arts is representation mm -hmm. right if you remember representation like representation of the culture well ancient so like so why did i mean pre-education was the pre-philosophy was the poetics mm -hmm. people told stories through poems right right through allegory right not because they were gullible right and would believe in in <laughs> stories of like these mythical stories of, of monsters right, and, right, and, right. and like fantastic human feats per se they were you know hyperbolic because for example, in ancient Greek society, a tragic hero, right, would become the embodiment of that of that universal characteristic of a person, right, or or fault, or or you know, like how can we embody hubris in a person, right, right, to teach a lesson. Yeah, Plato in the Republic, he was super concerned with types of art, right. I I still believe the Republic is a work of satire, mm -hmm. you know, really because the way he talks about censorship, yeah. Um, and how we need to control the way that form is delivered because form is the fundamental communicator, uh, whereas the context, the content of that form mm -hmm. is the subliminal aspect, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so we, all, we all think about the cave every day, man. Well, that's you know? the thing, man. So it's like <laughs> earlier people, yeah. right, were really hip on figurative speaking. Sure. 
right? So they understood allegory. And that, but that language makes a lot of sense even today but to process. The, and I th- but if we don't teach art, right, mm-hmm. to, to kids and in schools, if we don't teach people how to uh, cognize allegory, mm-hmm. then they are vulnerable to manipulation yeah. via bad art. Right. Donald Trump is bad art. <laughs> Fox News is bad art. Sure. Right. These are like any like whatever, uh, you know, Dave, Ruby, all these people, Shapiro, bad art. Yeah. Alex Jones. <laughs> Good art. <laughs> bad content. You know what I'm saying, though? It's, yeah, all, yeah, it's yeah. theater. Alex Jones could be funny if he was a comedian. He's hilarious. But, <laughs> but a, since he's serious and people are taking him seriously. But it's, it's, it's all theater. Yeah. It's all what, oh, sure. what the Greek It's absurdist theater, too, in itself. Yeah, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that everybody... I mean, there's, if you take it, there's people who take it seriously, and I think that that's where the, the danger lies. Sure. Um, well, you said, to, again, uh, it's weird talking to you because I'm, I'm re- reflecting on conversations we had a decade ago. But you said to me when we were in college that the danger... So we were in college when Facebook was first taking off. And I'm not blaming social media for all the problems yeah, we have today. 2006, right? 2006, 2007. That was like the first... The first, like, yeah. it, when social media became more than drinking pictures with your friends... You know, other people were getting on it, using it to voice their opinions. And you said to me, I think that there's a level... It was a Philip K. Dick-like novel (laughs) we were in living within, the creation of. Yeah, yeah. But you said, you said, I'll never forget in our kitchen in Franklin Street, you said there's a problem with this. And you were like that society is losing the ability to put any sort of um, value in peer review. The concept of peer review is disappearing. Like, you, you know, before this... You would, you would, in order to have something published for the mass masses to consume, there would have to be a process where people agreed that it wasn't bullshit, that it that it didn't sow discord, that it wasn't uh, there just to sow discord or make people skeptical of, of things that may actually be true or not true. And you're like, you know, the more people do this, the more people just directly publish to a gazillion people without any vetting process. It's going to degrade our society, and that it really stuck with me because in some ways it really has. Yeah. The the I think it's a combination of social media, the lack of peer review, the lack of of, of structures that say this is good or bad, uh, you know, literature worth consuming, and then also the values that we have where education and and art and these things are are thought of as like pieces of shit concepts that nobody cares about that the tower structure doesn't value because they're dangerous. Yeah. Because they're dangerous. I mean, that's all. That's all intent as well. And now yeah. our society's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, and for a while I was embittered by that, you know. And I think yeah. a, I think a lot of you know because I had my background's in academia. Sure. Yeah, you know, and some people don't know that that I walked away from. They can tell from this podcast, but yeah, yeah, yeah. At any, <laughs> but no. But the point is, for a while I was embittered by that. Yeah. Right. But also, there is a form of elitism mm-hmm. there. Sure. Like gatekeepers, right? We had gatekeepers of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to. We're living in a crisis of um, of expertise, right? Like, what is an expert currently? Well, right? we're living in a crisis of truth. Yeah, a crisis of truth. It's an <laughs> yeah, it's an epistemological thing, right? Yeah. But the point is that how do we reestablish a system that we don't? Because colleges are fucked up. Colleges Univers- are so fucked up. Univer- like liberal, like people don't under like or realize the history of liberal arts in in this country yeah right and it, all of it is it's it's all it's all a failure yeah like we fucked up we fucked up when we decided to implement all these systems mm-hmm. we fucked up when we chose a bunch of books that were supposed to represent like our culture our history and the way that people interact with the world and those books and media were used as a as a mechanism point when you're a young blank slate tablo rasa going to school to impress upon you what you're supposed to believe yeah. to prep you to participate in this and system. they've since supr- we've they've since been shown to suppress subjugate people of color mm-hmm. right like uh people like different uh, group different uh, people you know sexual backgrounds 
backgrounds. Like, if you think about a college class called Minority Writers, it's one class. Yeah, I was an English major four years, one class, Minority Writers. What? Yeah, to say that only white people wrote anything in all of history. <laughs> like, well, you know, dude, yeah, like even, <laughs> even the well. So sometimes I, people, I'll talk to somebody, and I'm sure this is something that that you really um, empathize with, right? Yeah, a lot of our quote-unquote heroes, the people who inspired us, are monsters. Right. Right. So how do you reconcile that, right? <laughs> to me, I think that if someone inspires you, mm-hmm. and if then you take that inspiration, and you do something good in the world, right. you then create good art. Yeah. That's not mimetic art, mm-hmm. right? That's just not, like, re- reproducing some kind of character, like characteristic of that previous art. If you are inspired to then generate, mm-hmm. dude, that's all you need. That's all a person needs. Take the inspiration that you had. Don't mm-hmm. feel bad about at that point in your life because of your naivete and your ignorance. Mm-hmm. Like for me, it's Heidegger. Right, right. right Heidegger, right. we now know, is a Nazi sympathizer. Right. Dude, I, I studied four years. You of talked this about mother. Heidegger all the time. All First thing in the morning, the fucking, I'd read. be making eggs. You'd be like, dude, uh, let me tell you about Heidegger. <laughs> I read, I read that fucker's book, dude. Yeah. Heide- if you sit down. I implore any of, of anybody who listens to this, read Being in Time, right? Yeah. And then jump off a fucking bridge. <laughs> because that's what he- that's what Heidegger is, man. Wait, so you were reading Heidegger and then Kierkegaard at the same time. I, uh, I did Kierkegaard, but Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard is still yeah, preserved. Christian. He was a Christian one, right? He was the Christian he was philosopher. A cri- well, he was a Christian existentialist. On being and nothingness. And I remember when you gave me his book, you said, hey, what do you think of on being and nothingness? Well, being, I said, so, I said it, was, it was more nothingness than being. Yeah. Oh, that was Sartre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard <laughs> wrote, well, funny. So Kierkegaard wrote... Um, an essay called The Present Age. Okay. Now, the thesis of this essay... So, Kierkegaard lived in a small town. I think he, it was in Copenhagen. Mm. And he was not popular because the town was Protestant. Yeah. Right? And Kierkegaard, he famously said, the last Christian died on the cross. Yeah. Right? yeah. And people hated that. Sure. What he meant by that, though, and, and it's the only form of Christianity, the only interpretation of Christianity which I'm, like, empathic to, yeah. is Kierkegaard's, because his whole point of view is that it's you and God, man. Yeah. It's not you and a collection of people right. who decide on God's message. It's not you and an institution like the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. It's not you and a. Tr- it's you, your choices the th- that you've made, mm-hmm. not you know, not not respective of anyone around you, and how you are being judged by that. That's why Kierkegaard's his whole philosophy. If you just take God out, if mm-hmm. you just replace God with your conscience, mm-hmm. it's the same message, right? You know, that's why he's the founder of existentialism. Mm-hmm. And because his former Christianity, it's like the thinnest wall right. between God and just there's you no, There's no and dogma the there. It's, right. it's just you and lo- looking, yeah. at, looking at yourself. Yeah. So he wasn't popular because he used to talk shit all the time. He would write these funny, like, you know, he was a hilarious dude. He would right. write these funny uh, things in the local newspaper, mm-hmm. just like shitting on. Uh, on Protestants. <laughs> in imagine town. those days. It's like what, fucking Protestants. Well, like, he hey, would, said, "Oh my God, dude!" He, he, he said, ripped those Protestants." He said everybody was an iconoclast. Yeah. He said everybody was just worshiping. Like Did you call me an iconoclast, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> motherfucker. But get this, man. <laughs> yeah. So, as a result of this, yeah, he wasn't popular, and there were he there was. This was the early days of media, mm-hmm. right? The first form of media is the newspaper. Sure. Right. The first, the first like chat form mm-hmm. right is the cafe right 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 right. you know so which is why we have pubs you know and public houses and public meeting houses, places right and yeah these yeah. are these are the first this is like you know discord mm-hmm. 
and shit like that that yeah. people hang out. The first form of Discord was a cafe. Sure, of course. I mean, and, look, and a bunch that's of Paris, man. And a bunch <laughs> of newspapers. <laughs> yeah. So people would sit and they would gossip. Yeah. Right. And they would talk shit about Kierkegaard. Yeah. So he wrote this essay. <laughs> so he wrote. This I essay. see you over there at the uh, yeah. you know, at Rue Saint Paul. Yeah. I know what you're saying. So he wrote this essay called "The Present Age." Yeah, saying that we're gonna be one day in a world, in a future, in which the media will have leveled everyone, mm. and that we won't know what's true and what's not. Looks like we're there. Yeah, "The Present Age" is one of the most like prophetic works I've ever read in my life. He wrote this in the in in the late 19th century, mm-hmm. and he describes uncannily just what ended up happening yeah you know that and if you read the, the work of the work of art in the age of reproductibility um by walter uh benjamin okay same sort of thing walter benjamin okay i don't know i mean i haven't read any of this stuff in 10 years well, his, so, <laughs> so well it's all it, because it's all about yeah they were they were living in relationship to burgeoning forms of technology right Kierkegaard it was the newspaper mm-hmm. so information was now being distributed right information was being disseminated Without true vetting, right? People could have opinions, yeah. And but a newspaper is uh, is an amalgamation of you know it's a vet it is vetted it by, is, by but, editors. But this the, was the beginning, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of of a certain of the cafe free, yeah, 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 of yeah. a way to you know of, yeah. So like, and then with Walter Benjamin, he was writing about um, a print, like uh, the creation of prints for mm-hmm. works of art, yeah. And he was saying how like. Um, since everyone can like see, for example, like the Mona Lisa. Yeah. If you actually go and see the Mona Lisa, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. Its power has been stripped. Huh. Because if a work of art is reproduced ad infinitum, mm-hmm. um, it loses its power. Yeah. So then fast forward, you know, to today, we have gifts and memes. Right. Right. And so I think that the evolution of the human mind in relationship to re- to the work of art in the age of reproductibility mm. is the creation of of like meme culture works of art that you can share over and over again but their power comes from the opposite so the power of a meme is the antithesis of the power of like a work of art like the mona lisa mm-hmm. but i've come to realize that they're both <laughs> equally as strong really yeah i'm not sure i completely wrap my head around why 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 are they equally as strong because it's a readaptation. okay so now a work of art that requires no rep- no re- uh, reproduction to mm-hmm. to be strong like the Mona Lisa right <laughs> has no power to someone who processes so much information mm, i see what you're saying you, you know what i mean yeah 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 why did you leave academia then that's a good question man yeah um it's like cuz like, you were really in it like when i last checked in with you but i th- and i'm fascinated by this as it transitions to how you got fully into music cuz you were like going to be a grad student, and then you were going to do be a professor, and so yeah. wa- walking well, away from all. I mean, look what you know about philosophy, which I'm not saying is, is useless knowledge, of course, but it's like, wow, how did you make that decision to walk away? It's it sounds like it's going to sound too like puzzle pit puzzle piece perfect. Yeah. Like it's kind of like cliche, or in my head at least, the way it happened. But I went pretty far. I was in grad school. I was working at the new school. I was doing stuff with with pedagogy, also through Montclair State yeah. and Columbia University. Right. And I wrote this article on, um, I was studying this branch of philosophy called phenomenology. Yeah. And phenomenology is just, it, it comes from a Latin word to study aspects of experience. Phenomena, mm-hmm. right? And I was using an analog of what a performer does. Right. What a, you know, from what I knew as a performer and what a performer does, a musician does, to create a space, a space of 
that information can be received in a specific way. Yeah. So like a, a good performer can enter any room. A right. comedian, a, a, a musician can enter a room and turn it into a stage in which information, whatever information they're going to produce, whether it's a comedian, you know, like that's why that um, famous clip of like, you know, Chappelle when he would perform in Washington Square Park, it's the best because it doesn't matter. The venue doesn't matter. Right. The stage comes from the person. Right. Right. And that was a concept. That was a concept I got from phenomenology, or it allowed it allowed me to um, um, like understand what was going on. Like it elucidated in my head what I was doing as a performer. Huh. So I was writing this paper, this pe- this paper on pedagogy about what makes a good teacher, mm. and then I had this light bulb moment that a teacher is a performer. Mm. You know, and it sounds obvious, but it had never occurred to me before that a, a great teacher, all of our great teachers are great performers. And great storytellers. Great storytellers. Yeah. So what they're doing is, you know, like what if every perf- every class you went to mm-hmm. was like bookended with stand-up by a, <laughs> by a good, but, but here, by yeah. a good comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so there's something. What's the deal with homework? Yeah. I mean, come on. You're mainly, most of you doing it here. Well, that's why I remember, <laughs> like, I remember back in... Uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now, man. Yeah. When shit. we were talking about, or not when we were talking, but it was being spoken about how like more people get their news from Jon Stewart yeah. with The Daily Show right. than they do from anything else. And that's because all good performance is has blended within it mm-hmm. an aspect of charisma, you know. So, so to me, teaching and to, is, is great performance. So to instruct, and I was in a field that was with uh, writing like curriculum development and how to train teachers mm-hmm. you know uh with like philosophy for children and all all this all these different projects i realized that to help teachers we need to help them be performers yeah help them open up the stage and sure. then but at the same time like simultaneously it made me realize i don't want to write about performance i just want to <laughs> perform <laughs> fair enough I mean that makes like, sense. I, it's it's uh, fair I, enough. I felt like I was becoming my only. I felt like my path, yeah, was a path towards criticism, and by that I mean to become a critic. Yeah, and I feel like the critic and the performer and the artist, they're always in this like war with sure. one another sure. in terms of who is actually creating the framework upon which the art is supposed to be received. Right, and I was like. It should be the artist, right? right All right. of this should be artist owned, and it's another part of you know the whole like gatekeeping. But that's I didn't realize at the moment, but that was the thing that made me realize I needed to divorce myself from academia. Hmm. Um, but that was a later realization because it didn't happen right away. I worked as like a you know because I was working as a bartender through school, and I stayed working. I stayed in in that realm mm-hmm. for years, and then I just took the dive. Yeah. A few years ago, just like no plan B kind of dive. <laughs> that, that I mean, hey man, I'm, I respect that a lot, and I'm envious of it in some ways because I, I can, I've talked about this in other podcasts with other people, but I just didn't have the balls because I really think in order to to really dive in to be successful, you have to take that dive with no plan yeah. B. You well, have, I was, you have I, was to. Pu- I was pushed off the cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to though. I mean, because it's a fight or flight response, right? Like you're either going to well, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing too, man. It's like it's not like I quit elegantly. So I was I was working for a restaurant group, right? Uh, yeah. I'm talking about academia, but I'd like to hear about well, it. Yeah. Here's the th- I mean, well, it's the yeah. same it's the same sort of thing. So yeah. it's like I left academics and then yeah. I was working, you know, I was doing this job in the city working at a restaurant group, making really good money for years. Yeah. And then a part of it you get, you know, you get disenfranchised with with being in a place like after too long and when you also realize that what you're doing is stifling. Mm-hmm. Like I thought I had a good schedule because I only had a couple of days. Right. So I thought I would have the rest of the week to commit to music and 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 
doing art, uh, you know, artwork. But you never do that. Right. You know, you end up, it's like you, yeah. anytime you do something right, it has to be all in. Right. You can't be doing anything else. Yeah. And if you think so, you're just, I mean, it, like you're in denial. Yeah. Because no, you can't, it's impossible. <laughs> it needs to be all in if you want, if you want to really make it work. Right. But at any rate, um, they were doing exploitative practices at this at this restaurant group, you know, right. against the employees, like screwing over the employees. And I wrote this hilarious, <laughs> like, letter to uh, to HR, yeah, and, and to corporate. I like copied everyone into it, yeah, just like because I'm a dramatic asshole, and yeah, I just, no, I, like, that sounds like you. I yeah. like, <laughs> and I I did it in the dick, the most dick way possible. Nice, you know, just like writing a hilarious, like, over lawyered. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. like letter, and uh, it gets better to burn out than the fade away, dude, right? But like, <laughs> like within an hour, yeah, I got this like urgent email uh, to come to the office. Wow, right? And but not against me. It's like I started. I, I it was fear. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it was fear. And well, because what they were doing was illegal. Yeah, they yeah. were doing this. Th- it's I don't want to get into the details yeah, of yeah, it, but I, I it was it. it was had to do. It with, seems like, fucked. Yeah, it had to do with wages, right? Yeah. So, um, I catalyzed this whole thing and. Um, <laughs> And then my boss, after I mean, like they were just trying to find a way to get me out, so they finally did. Right. And then I, uh, I sent the guy who wrote the letter. I sent it. <laughs> yeah. So I replied. I replied to the entire company. Yeah. Uh, or no, I replied to the email list for that particular restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this email. So actually, I probably have it. <laughs> I probably have it somewhere. It's hilarious. Yeah. I don't my phone on me, but I should read it later. But yeah. at any rate, it was the same. I was just saying how I got fired. For serving a uh, caffeinated coffee to uh, to a lady who had asked for decaf, <laughs> no way. Yeah, I wrote no, I wrote this whole like like <laughs> like big satirical letter. Yeah, and at the bottom I attached. You know how like when you get corporate letters, there's always the signatures. Sure. So I just I I took the signature of the company mm-hmm. and I just like manipulated like little dumb things, <laughs> and I added a photo like a photo I made of my boss on the face of like a little possum. <laughs> This is a very extreme quitting situation. So this got this got shared like throughout the entire company. Yeah. And then eventually when my former boss when he uh when he when he ended up leaving the company, yeah. They surprised them with and this is no joke, they surprised them with a cake <laughs> that had the photo of the possum on it. No way. It became this like legendary th- or this 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 like this thing that never went away. Cool. But the, you know, the long story short is after that I need to immediately figure out how to um <laughs> How to make after I after I uh, yeah. made sure I would never get hired anywhere again. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's how I operate, dude. Listen, if anybody wants to get into the arts, man, you gotta yeah. you gotta really fuck yourself into that corner. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. gotta. Yeah, so, I respect it the most, dude. I really do. But here's the but, thing, man. It's I realized in that uh, that day. Yeah, that we're only held back by fear. Yeah, of course. That of course. day, I I left <laughs> I left the office by, yeah. like newly fired. I left the office and I immediately picked up my phone yeah. and I called people I would have never called before yeah. who were in the industry. Right. Saying, hey, I'm available. Yeah. Need a guitar player. Um, and I approached it with a level of audacity I never would have. Mm-hmm. Right. It was fueled by desperation. Sure. That I wasn't like putting on, but just like it was it was it was fueled by needing to make something happen. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of weeks, I had an audition and I had that year I played like over 100 gigs. Wow. And it was really, and you know, I. It all comes back to to that, yeah. to being in a situation in which you have to figure it out. Yeah. Just think about it's it's an energy thing. Yeah. Right. Like when you do a job, that you're connected, that you're tied into for an economic, because you're you have to earn a fucking a paycheck, right? Sure. But if you're not, if you don't love it, then 
it's really just like going to the gym, mm-hmm. but you're just <laughs> getting fatter or something. <laughs> you know, you're not like you're you come back that's on. A, that's more, a good way to put it. You come back more unhealthy it's because you're expending energy. You can't get back. Right? And, and you can't do shit with your time once it's gone. It's totally true, and, and and it's even like even in some of the, like the roles and jobs I've had in my life, it's like in fact I did get a lot out of them. Like I was creatively fulfilled. I I did do, but like still at the end of the day, you just can't. Something's it's just missing. Yeah. But then it's once just you missing. once you light that off, man, and you commit and you fall into it, you just do everything better. I think you do everything better. And yeah. I think I think the people who don't do well uh, in creative, it's because something you know there's a there's a part of their um, their choices. There's a part of their motivation mm-hmm. which is wrong-footed. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I really think, and, and and that may sound like um, I don't know. Like you, we look. There's not many people who seem to survive pursuing something creative, but I think it's because really at the core of it, it's got to be based in in love yeah. for, for what you're doing. And I did a lot of stuff with for no money, mm-hmm. just because I was trying to create. Yeah, uh, you know, and like even currently right now, it's like with this new project I'm launching with uh, this artist co- cooperative called The House. Um, this is a ground up project. You know, this is we have to ask people to invest time, effort, money for no guaranteed return. Right. Right. But that's but that's but it's built. Best. It's <laughs> built. It's built on an idea, yeah. you know, and sometimes when you see who you're, when you're inspired by the people you're working with, you know, and that's another thing too, man. Like, I think the only reason why I've been able to get to where I'm at, which is nothing special, but just like be, being able to sustain myself somewhat as a as a creative and, and do as what musician, you love as your life is by surrounding myself by people who I admire mm-hmm. and who I feel like destroy me, right? Like on a creative level. Hmm. You know, like <laughs> I, I always <laughs> like you're. I mean, you have to surround yourself with people who are better than you. Is that what you always? Mean? Yeah, for me, yeah. Because it keeps me, it keeps me motivated. No, everybody has to do that. And I mean, keeps, I do that with comedy yeah. too. I, I I write stand up with a guy who's funnier than me. You know what I mean? Like you, you got it, man. You have to. And then you also have to trust your instincts. I mean, it's the weirdest fucking thing because when you're doing something creative, I think it's the most first person thing. Yeah. And like we're like nuts, man. Like I, I have like imposter syndrome. All it's like it's like it's so hard to see yourself in an objective light. Yeah. Or to even accept that okay, that was good. It's impossible, right? It's not good. It's never good. I mean, you but you've you got to like, accept the degree <laughs> of like. It's like Frank Zappa said, yeah. "You have you have to abandon it." A mix. That's the only way. Yeah, you have to walk away. <laughs> I I started feeling, I started feeling good about my playing. Yeah. To be totally honest, like this year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, like in the sense that I'll play, I'm like, yeah, I could play. Yeah. Like I'm not gonna like, but that's a different thing than being like uh, like thinking that you're hitting home runs all the time. Right. 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 Like, I think I can play. Mm-hmm. I think I drop the ball a lot. Yeah. I think sometimes I have really good high moments of inspiration. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't have any pretenses about it, but I do think I could, at this point, I think I could play. That's I listened amazing. back to juvenile, rec- like, younger recordings of me, and I'm like, what the fuck was he even doing? You yeah. Know? yeah. I owe a big part of it. Like, you know, I didn't go to music school, but I took private lessons mm-hmm. with this guy, with um, a musician by the name of Jim Campolongo, uh-huh. who I encourage everyone to check out. Yeah. Uh, he was one of my heroes before I even took lessons with him. He right. did stuff with like Nora Jones. He did stuff with Cake. Like he's just this incredible. And he got me into country western swing, mm. like old school shit. Yeah. He showed me jazz. He showed me melody. Like my whole thing is I solos for me were always just emotional releases. It's yeah. like scream through the fucking guitar because I you learned solo that. like a motherfucker, man. Nobody I, solos like you. But well, thanks, man. <laughs> but I got that from Hendrix. Yeah. Right? But I wanted to get into a deeper, and it's probably just getting older, man. It's like you get into you get into 
lyricism and melody and just sort of like it's like the Leonard Cohen thing. Like now I can get deep. In, now I can dig Leonard Cohen. Yeah, so you have the you have the, you you've had enough experience now to yeah. do it. So I can like I can ha- it doesn't have to always be a hundred and ten. And and you know it's I'm excited to see where you're gonna go with this melody thing because uh, it's funny, dude. I connect so much to what you're saying right now because I was thinking about turning thirty two in September and literally the thought that went through my head the other day was okay, I think I can listen to Neil Young now. Like I think I can finally understand. Well, it. that's the beauty. <laughs> well, dude, it's funny that you say that, man. Because here's here's the thing, man. That keeps that keeps you moving too, as as, a, as an, an artist, right? Yeah. You got to keep you got to keep your musical nutrients up. Yeah. People yeah, forget yeah. art's a diet. Right. 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 It's it's a lifestyle, but it's also a, it's a diet. Right. You have to keep on consuming yeah. new shit. Yeah. Because I you never want to be the guy who's just like oh. You all my brothers. <laughs> you never want to be that fucking guy. Yeah. You know, or you never want to be the person who's too stubborn to accept when good talent's before you. Right. When better talent and, and use it as as just enter the you know, the 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 geist of it. Mm-hmm. Um and for me, the best part of music is like there's still so many people. Uh, like Peter Green, mm-hmm. you know, rest in power, just passed away. Sure, yeah. I just started getting into Peter Green this past year. Yeah, what a guitarist. Like, incredible. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. it's just so much shit. Yeah. You know, know, I remember getting into Roy Buchanan. It's like all this stuff that I was never hip to. Yeah. But now but it's, it's like... But it's out... And it kind of hits you when you're ready for it. Like, uh, you know, even John Prine died. John Prine never d- listened to him really Never before. listened to him. I never heard of him. Dude, brought me to tears, man. Dude, dude, dude. Like, you're going to get this out for a second, like... I, coronavirus happens and John Prine dies. I have never heard of John Prine. I've listened to gazillions of galaxies worth of music in my life, and people are calling him the best American songwriter. And I don't know who he is. I've never even heard of him. I thought it was one of those collective unconscious, like, what is, is this like a glitch in the Matrix? Who is yeah. this guy? I started listening to him. I put on Clay Pigeons for the first time, and I was tears were streaming yeah, down my it's, face. It's unbelievable, dude. And tears were streaming down my face. But then even like <laughs> you know, there's even like like artists today, like Madison Cunningham. Yeah, is is a girl I've been listening to a tremendous amount. I mean, she's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, like she reminds me of like Joni Mitchell meets like uh, Radiohead mm. meets Bill Frizzell. Yeah, yeah. You know, I gotta check. I don't know. I don't know her, but I'll check that out. But there's just a, there's a there's a degree of music. There's a, there's an opportunity to be so unadulteratedly yourself. Yeah. And to me, that is the most beautiful. And that's the third. It's your thirties, right? So hopefully, liberating. Well, yeah, and it's just like it, it's it's your thirties. It's acceptance of um, of allowing like yourself to pursue aspects of the of of like the art life, and just being open to just like how beautiful and how expansive that world can be. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So these days, now you're going into this. Uh, we'll cap this with you're going into a melody direction. You mentioned that a few times throughout the podcast, where it speaks to you more now. Yeah. So as a, as an independent electric guitar player, um, how do you bring melody into the music? Because I noticed you've been doing that when you're on uh, your Lattice concerts and things like that. You're you're a guy with a guitar, but not singing, creating sca- soundscapes and playing. Right. So what 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 is that exactly? What are you trying to do? It's tough, man. Um, <laughs> you have to stop. Pl- well, I think about this a lot because it's hard to be a guitar player and yeah. to play. On your own and be captivating. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So I had well, for one, Jim showed me something because if you dig deep into the into the American like into the American into the world of like America, the genealogy of American music, Mm -hmm. you listen to guys like Les Paul Mm -hmm. and Chet Atkins. Yeah. They played guitar 
not only as accompanists, they yeah. played like piano players. Right. They had to incorporate rhythm, melody, mm. and harmony, mm. right? The three tenets of music, right? All in their playing. So I really think it's just guitar players have gotten lazy. Because mm. because of rock and roll, guitar almost became like a saxophone. Mm. Became a line instrument, like a lead instrument. And we forgot the art of how much more that instrument can do. So really all I'm trying to do is just like return to that in some ways. Yeah. yeah. And to use the instrument and not be selfish. Right. If you're just a, if you're just a musician and all you want to do is play like like leads or lines or being selfish, it's like tell the story through the song. Yeah. Let your choices be dictated by what would be so like just like how I imagine a singer to approach singing over a melody. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna fucking scat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're <laughs> not gonna go off just being ridiculous. Yeah. They're gonna make choices, whether it's explicit or implicit. You know, you don't have to be knowledgeable of harmony per se to make these choices like Kurt Cobain, right. they're going to make choices which serve the song mm. and take the song to the place it needs to go. That description made a lot of sense to me. Uh, I didn't expect you to answer the question that way, and uh, that really clicked. Uh, that, that was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it there. I think So Justin's going to play a song for us. And um, Hey, man, before you do that, though, thanks for coming on my new podcast. Yeah, man. And it's, it's good to catch up with you again. Uh, You're live. a crypto-fascist, but it's <laughs> I'm just trying to get them all in, man. <laughs> Yeah, whatever, though, you yeah. know. <laughs> ten, ten ways to get a free laptop. I, I did it for me, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, hey, I'm glad you're back in my life. I'm as you said, I'm glad we're friends again as the world collapses. Uh, I'll, see you, uh, I'll see you at the very last moment when the sun engulfs everything. I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll come find you. At the end of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, all right, man, well, you'll play a song for us. I'll provide Justin's contact information in the link to this podcast and at the end, and thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Cheers. Justin Garcia. Thank you for listening to the Real People Podcast. I provided Justin's info in the link to this episode. Follow me on Instagram at Insta Ginsburg.